a season called Lent that we happen to be in. It's a 40-day pilgrimage, if I can put it that way, that seeks to mirror and, and duplicate what Jesus did for those 40 days in the wilderness. And, and what we started last week and are going to be doing through these, these Sundays up to Palm Sunday is just kind of pulling back the veil a little bit on some of the practices and customs and traditions that have gotten associated with this season. You know, maybe you're here today and like you've never even heard this word before. You're like, Lent, what's that? Well, hopefully through the course of today, you get a feel for what this season is about. And maybe you're here today and your entire frame of reference has been like, well, I guess I give something up for 40 days. That sounds fun. Um, I just kind of hope that you, you find that it's something more than some just weird little exercise that, that people like. Is that the right word to do? Um, and somehow through it, discover the essence, the, uh, the heartbeat of what these practices of this season were always meant to be about and convey. Now, above all things, Lent is really a time of recommitment. Central to the teaching of Jesus is this, this idea that God wants to have a deep and intimate relationship with each and every one of us, that God loves you, and that God wants you to love him in return, and, and that he wants this expression of love to be something more than just good feelings inside or passing emotion, but something that, that really gets at the depth and the core of love rooted in things like loyalty and sacrifice and commitment to each other. This is actually embedded in the idea of faith. Um, in the Christian faith, we say that, that faith in Jesus is central, that faith in Jesus is important, that faith in Jesus is even where salvation in life is found. But for so many people, faith is relegated to ideas. I believe that two plus two is four. I believe that Jesus existed. I must have faith. But the idea of faith in the biblical world was closer to fidelity. It meant things like loyalty and commitment and maybe our word faithfulness expresses it better. However you put it, it's getting at the same thing. God loves you. God wants you to love him in return. And in that relationship, he wants a deep, intimate connection with you that's expressed through the ways that we commit and sacrifice and pledge our loyalty and stand by the ones that we love. Let me give you an expression of this out of the Bible. Jesus was a popular guy. He was not a popular with the wrong sort of people, religious people, but he was popular with the right sort of people the downtrodden, the broken, the criminal, the tax collector, the prostitute. He's popular. People are just amazed by him. They're following him. They're, they're, they're hanging on his words. I mean, he, all right, you know what? He's the greatest show in town. And when the greatest show comes to town, you get wrapped up. You buy the T-shirt. You want to be a part of it. And this is what's going on. Jesus knows it. And so the Gospel of Luke says this, that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. I mean, these are actually like groupies now, all right? They're traveling with Jesus. 
and knowing that they weren't quite grasping the essence of what he was calling people into this, 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 this deep, intimate love relationship marked by commitment and loyalty and sacrifice, knowing that this is just the hot fad for so many of them or, or a fleeting thing, he turns to them and listen to what he says. It's, it's, it's whacked out. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus will use that word disciple to describe that kind of relationship I'm talking about. He'll use that word disciple to describe that, that, that deep, intimate connection that's marked by loyalty and sacrifice and devotion and all those things that really make the, 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 the foundation and the, the rock bed of what we call love. And he turns to them and he goes, think about the people you love. You here with your kids today? You here with your spouse or your significant other? Maybe hating a brother or a sister comes easier for you, but I bet in that list, it stung you in some way. Turn to the person sitting next to you and go, I hate you. <laughs> right? It's, what do you do with that? Anyone who does not hate this list of people, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even himself, his own life, or herself, her own life, can't be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He goes on. He says this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Translate to today. A house. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this guy began to build and was not able to finish. Or think about it this way. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. What's he getting at in these little parables that he says? I like to think of it like this. Count the cost. Understand what you're getting yourself into in a relationship with me. Because what I'm seeking, God says, is not just some fleeting emotion. What I'm not seeking is just some half-hearted devotion. What I'm not seeking is someone who just likes me and posts it on Facebook. I want more than you to wear my t-shirt. I'm looking for that deeply 
intimate relationship with you. And as we all know, a, a healthy, good, deeply intimate relationship has to go two ways, with, with sacrificing and, and loyalty and devotion given to each other. We know that God gives this to us, now Jesus says, but if you want the essence of this relationship, it means giving it to me as well. It's the fascinating thing about the Christian faith, about the relationship with God, that Jesus freely gives everything but then demands everything, asks for everything in return. Because that's what good, deep, intimate relationships are like, aren't they? With a spouse, with a child, you give everything and hope that they also give everything in return. This idea of commitment is central to, to the essence of the relationship that Jesus tells us about and central to what Lent is about, a time to revisit, recommitment to him. Now, the, the difficulty with passages like this, I mean, besides just the extremity of them, right? It's like, how do, you, how do you actually take it seriously? Let me give you that line that he gave, right? How do you take that seriously? Like, how do you approach that where it's not just like a lip service thing, right? Or what I think some of us do going, oh, it's hopeless, so why even try good news, Jesus forgives me? Doesn't that seem to miss the point? A little bit. For those of us who love him and are devoted to him and, 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 and really want to express it back, have you ever kind of looked at passages like this and you're like, where do I even go? Like, like how do I even start? What does this even look like? I mean, am I supposed to sell my house and put on like white robes and go like live in a mountaintop in Tibet? Am I supposed to join a mountain? Like, like, what is this and how do I do it? There's a, a way that I've discovered that comes out of the the Pentateuch as the word I was going to use, but you probably don't know what that means. It comes out of Deuteronomy, all right? It comes out of one of these first books of the Bible called Deuteronomy. This, this way that ancient Israel would practice it that I've, I've kind of picked up on and we've picked up on here, and it kind of helps me figure this out. Now, let me read this passage to you. And at first, it's not going to seem like it has anything to do with anything, but stay with me in this, and, and let's just kind of figure out what's going on. Now, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And if you're reading this in a modern translation, you're going to see that like this chapter is headed off by a little subtitle called The King. All right? What's going on in this book, this book called Deuteronomy? 
is that the people of Israel have just come out of their wandering in the wilderness. Right? Remember the story? God rescues them from Egypt, and he says, I'm going to give you this promised land. And it takes like six weeks by foot to get from Egypt to the promised land. But the entire way that they're going, they're rebelling against God. They're distrusting God. They're revolting against God. They're rebelling against Moses. They're grumbling here. They're complaining here. Like pretty much every road trip we've ever taken with our kids, right? And God finally has it up to here. And he's like, you know, forget this. Why are are we going on vacation to begin with? You know what? You want to stay here, you want to rot here, stay here. And he leaves them out in the wilderness for 40 years. You ever kind of realize that sometimes we all just need a wake-up call like that? And sometimes, especially those of us who are parents with our kids, it takes things like that to kind of make them go, oh, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'll, I'll, I'll be good now, right? You know, parents, have you ever threatened this way or done this kind of, you know what I mean, Right? Okay, here's what Deuteronomy is about. At the beginning of the 40 years, God came to Mount Sinai and gave him this law, this amazing covenant, like a marriage covenant of promises to be given to one another. And they broke it, and they broke it, and they broke it. Well, now the 40 years is done. And the little kids who had to pay for their parents' mistakes have come of age. They're grown-ups. Mom and dad are buried in the desert somewhere. And God is going to bring this next generation into the promised land. But what he does is gives them the covenant again. And that's what Deuteronomy means, second covenant or second law, the second time It's given, repeating so many of the things that he gave at Sinai, but then clarifying and reminding of certain things that they seem to really miss along the way. And in the midst of this, you get this weird little passage, and here's what it says. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and take possession of it and settle in it, you're going to say, let's set up a king over us like all the other nations around us. Okay. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more, for, uh, more of them. For the Lord has told you, you must not go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And then it says this, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, well, let me show it to you. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life 
so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Track with me on this. You're going to come into the land, you're going to want a king. Fine. Make sure you pick a king along these lines and this kind of character. He gets installed. Now, what is the king supposed to do as part of his kingly mandate by God? Well, he's to write for himself on a scroll because books aren't invented yet. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, probably referring to the book of Deuteronomy. Have you ever tried to write by hand the book of Deuteronomy? Have you ever found yourself busy going, where is the time? How much more for a king? Doesn't matter. Just to write for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law. Okay, what's he do with it? It's to be with him. Like, I'd like to know what that looked like. Like, how big is that actual scroll? I mean, is this like a three-by-five like, set of index cards that you tuck in, or are you like hauling this thing around everywhere you go? But it's to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life. In other words, God's like, you need to have this down. I'm telling you here what I want of you and what this relationship and commitment looks like. You need to write it down. You need to write it down yourself. Don't hire someone else to do it. Don't go to the library and check out a copy. Don't get someone, some priest, you know, snab one when they're not looking or something like that. No, you gotta do it because by writing it, you make it your own. By writing it, well, you've taken notes. It ingests in some deeper kind of way. So, so write this down, king, and carry it with you. Don't put it on your bookshelf. Don't tuck it in your sock drawer. You know, don't leave it in some prominent place on the mantle to admire. No, you got to carry this sucker around. Let it be with you, and you got to read it. Not once, not twice, not, ooh, let's get crazy here, four times. All the days of your life. You need to be in it, ingesting it, reminding yourself of it, swimming in it, so that you may learn what it means to revere Yahweh your God. Can I put this in Jesus' language? So that you may learn what it means to be my disciple. Why? Because it's easy to forget. Isn't it? Kings are busy, and I've got to believe that the king's schedule was pretty much booked up from morning to night. It doesn't give or accommodate for a lot of time for things like having a quiet moment with the Lord. It's easy when you're a king 
to start thinking that you're above the law. That the people are answerable to you and that you are answerable to no one. It's easy to start following the crowd, seeing how other people practice this this reverence to Yahweh and going, well, that must be the way you do it and kind of doing what they do and not even realizing that you start veering off to the left or veering off to the right. It's easy to forget what that deep, intimate relationship with God that he so desires really is actually like. We forget. We forget too, don't we? I bet your schedules are booked morning, noon, and night. And do not allow or accommodate for, you know, the Folgers moment, you know, the Taster's Choice moment of having that quiet time with the Lord. I'm going to sit at my, my kitchen table and stare at the sunset and just, ah, with the Lord. You know what I mean? Is, we kinda, I bet your schedules or the people in your home do not accommodate that kind of thing. It's easy for God to get pushed out to the margins. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget what he says that relationship should look like. And in forgetting, we kind of start fashioning the relationship of our own making, don't we? We see how other people practice reverence to the Lord. We see how we feel. And we let that be our guide. And so often without realizing it, we veer to the right or to the left. Creating a fabricated relationship with God instead of the one that he desires. It's not an issue just for kings in ancient Israel. It's an issue for us too. And it can be easy for us, I think, as well, to think that we too are above the law. Jesus died for you. So who cares? Do what you want. You're covered, baby. Does that seem to capture the spirit of what God is inviting you into? And so to correct this, to prevent it, the ancient kings would write the law, carry it with them, read it all the days of their life, make it a part of their life so that what God had to stay would stay central. And their hearts would stay tuned in this committed relationship to him. Now, what does that mean for you? I mean, the Bible's long. And, I mean, if you want to write it by hand, 
I mean, be my guest. I'm not going to get in your way. Even if you take Deuteronomy and you want to write Deuteronomy by hand, I mean, be my guest. I'm not going to get in your way. But what we've done here at Fellowship of Faith is, is, is we've developed a summary. Not a replacement, but a summary, because we need summaries, don't we? We need to have, have accessible ways to things like this to kind of capture some major driving things and keep them before us. And so here at Fellowship of Faith, we've developed a summary. Our way is we're practicing this, this way of reverence to Yahweh together in this context, in this community, drawing on the teachings of Jesus and the teachings that he drew on himself, trying to bring together the essence of what it means to walk in his way. Here at FOF, we call it our covenant renewal. We call it a covenant because a covenant is a promise. But it's a promise based in relationship. A promise that's meant to denote intimacy. It's why when people get married, they still call it a marriage covenant. It's promises they're making to each other, not just some forensic contract. No, something more. Something that touches them at a, at a deeper place and, and is an expression of the fiber of their being. So we call it a covenant and we call it renewal because we've learned that we too need to remember lest we forget what Jesus is calling us to as well. Paul's got this line worth remembering. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He even goes on from there. And he says this, Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Which, of course, implies that you might be deceiving yourself all along. And the stakes are high, and what's here is important, and this relationship with God should be so central, so test yourself. Examine yourself. Are you veering to the right or to the left, or are you, in fact, walking that relationship of commitment with the Lord? The way I like to think about it is like this. Back when we were dating, Tina and I had this long-distance relationship for a while. We met at Velpo. We had two amazing years, like, living on campus together, and then she left me, and we had to drive two and a half hours back and forth one way during the school year, four during the summers and the breaks, and, like, every weekend... You're out to see her girlfriend. She's out to see her boyfriend doing the drives. And a lot of times, because we were, well, stupid, um, you'd get off work at like 11 o'clock at night. But you wanted to get out there because you wanted to maximize every moment. So what do you do? You down the pop. We weren't coffee drinkers then. Red Bull didn't exist. And 
He got in the car. And I became very thankful in those late night drives after a long week and a tired day for a little invention called the rumble strip. Are you familiar with the rumble strip? It's these obnoxious things that they used to put before toll gates but now put on the shoulders on the side of the car. And when you start to veer... It rumbles, it vibrates, it wakes you up. It kind of gives you that fear factor, like, you know, one of those so you can stay awake for eight seconds again before you're doing, you know, that, you know, down the road trying to keep, you remember these times, windows down, radio blaring, slapping yourself every five seconds, trying to push it through, especially in the middle of rural Indiana where there is like nothing. You know what I mean? I remember this one time. It's probably like two in the morning and I was driving. And I kind of did one of these. And I saw an entire family of four with their face pushed up to the glass and eyes this big as my car is doing that. Whoa, baby. Because if a rumble strip doesn't catch you, the consequence can be disastrous. All of us veer. All of us veer. But God has given you a rumble strip to make sure that you do not veer to the right or veer to the left and can course correct when you start to get off bearing. Here at FOF, we've developed a rumble strip called our Covenant Renewal based on the scriptures and based on what we see central to the way of Jesus. It's just a series of yes and no questions designed to help you do that. Let me give an example of a few. We'll write things like this. At FOF, we never want to be a sea of nameless faces. We believe the way of Jesus does not go alone and that we are called to be in fellowship with each other. Membership means doing life together. Discipleship means doing life together. We want to be an Acts 2 church where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer, where everyone was filled with awe and wonders and miraculous signs were done by apostles, where the believers were together and had everything in common, etc., etc. And then we'll just ask things like this. I feel connected to others at FOF. Yes or no? I worship at FOF regularly. I regularly attend some kind of group or Sunday morning study. I regularly connect with others. Just simple yes and no's. Rumble strips to help you see how the life of discipleship is going. How about this? Discipleship means radically turning our lives over to God. We believe we're loved by God and though broken, God yearns to redeem and restore every aspect of who we are. We ask questions like this. I feel closer to God than I did a year ago. I'm more committed to Christ today than I was a year ago. 
I'm confronting the sin I have in my life. I can accept God's forgiveness for me. I repent and recommit to God daily. I'm actively seeking to be obedient to God. I'm taking new chances to God. How are you answering these questions today? Paul writes, test yourself. To see if that intimate, deep relationship rooted in commitment is really there. Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith because God wants nothing more than to be in deep, intimate relationship with you. Lent is a time of recommitment. And what I want to invite you to this season is that. To recommit. Wherever you're at here today, to commit or recommit to that relationship with him to test yourself. Take this tool and examine yourself. Carry it with you. Read it all the days of your life. Write it out by hand if you want. You're getting the gist. Don't relegate your relationship with God to the margins. Actively pursue it at the center of your life and who you are. At the end of the service, I'll tell you the details about where to pick this up. For now, I just want to invite you to rise. I'm of the belief that recommitment always has to start with repentance. That to come back and pledge yourself again only happens when we acknowledge the past and set the past right and restore the relationship. I don't know how you've been veering, but I'm going to bet that you have been. I have too. Just join together with me right now. Take a couple of moments to still your heart. Come to God. Seek his face, confess to him, and then we'll pray together. O oh, Father who forgives, who will forgive, who has forgiven, we return again to acknowledge what we are eager to forget, that our hearts have not forsaken, seeking good apart from you, as if we could set you aside to test our sin once more. We have sold sacred hours to search out some relief in the same barren fields we've so often wandered. We've returned to you empty, only to find in the end you walked those fields with us, offering joy all along. O oh, Father who forgives, Please make us convinced that our sin cannot satisfy, that good comes only from you. We rise together now, standing only in your grace, hoping only in your Son. 
God the Father in heaven. God the Son, Redeemer of the world. God the Holy Spirit. Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. O Christ, O Lord, O Christ. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. He took a cup after supper and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and he said, drink of this, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He died for you because he loves you. He died for you and you are forgiven. He died for you to open the way for deep, intimate relationship with God. I pray and hope you embrace that in him today. Have a seat.